Society, the podcast that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and co-host of Dead Pilot Society. Happy 2020, everybody. Uh, here in L.A., I just watched them feed the giant Christmas tree at the Grove into the wood chipper. So the holiday season is definitively over. Maybe you've got some creative resolutions for this new year and new decade, something you want to write. Maybe you want to sell your first pilot or your 10th. For our first episode of 2020, we've got some inside dope for you. I mean, I feel like Dead Pilot Society is always giving you the inside dope since we talk about the actual reality of the television business, because most of the TV business is not the huge successes and the long-running hits. It's hardworking writers creating great material that goes nowhere. That's what happens most of the time. And it's that material that we celebrate here at Dead Pilot Society. Uh, A few months back, we ran an interview I did with Jamila Hunter, former head of comedy at ABC, now an executive at Freeform, uh, in which we got the executive's side of this whole story. And I got a lot of great reactions to that episode, mostly from writer friends, but also from non-writers who really appreciated hearing that perspective. So we are doing it again. This time, my guest is Sami Falvey. Sami's someone I've worked with a lot over the years. I met her when she was an executive at Fox, and then she spent many years as head of comedy at ABC. Uh, She was actually Jamila's predecessor in that job. And while at ABC, she had a hand in developing Blackish, Fresh Off the Boat, The Goldbergs, Last Man Standing, Speechless, American Housewife, many others. And uh, after all of those years on the buying side, she's now on the selling side as chairman at Imagine Television. Uh, We get deep into it. This isn't vague, theoretical writing advice. This is practical insider knowledge about how it all works. How long should your pitch be? How do you handle notes? Sami will even tell you the one plot point to avoid. And believe me, some of you out there have this plot point in your scripts right now. God knows I've used it in some of mine. Uh, Even if you're not a writer, I think you'll enjoy this inside look at how the TV sausages are made. You'll hear about the origins of shows like Blackish and the Goldbergs and Happy Endings. Uh, now, before we play the interview, I want to let you know the next Dead Pilot Society live show will be the afternoon of Saturday, February 29th at the Westside Comedy Theater in Santa Monica. That's right. It's a special leap year edition, and it's our first Westside show. Uh, follow us on social media so you'll see details of the pilots and cast as they're all announced. Uh, but it's going to be a good one. Okay. Now, in her first podcast appearance ever, here's my friend Sami Falvey after a brief message. Friendly Fire is a podcast about war movies, but it's so much more than that. It's history. It was just supposed to be another assignment. It's comedy. Under no circumstances are you to engage the enemy. It's cinema studies. It's a hell of a combination. So subscribe and download Friendly Fire on your podcatcher of choice. Or at MaximumFun.org. And also come see us at San Francisco Sketch Fest on January 16th. You can get tickets at sfsketchfest.com. Oh, shit. Fuck. 
All right. I'm here with Sami Falvey. Um, Hi. We don't have to reminisce too much about how long we've known each other. I was thinking probably, if you lived here, you'd be home now, was maybe, what, 2003, 2004? Oh, my God. Yes. That I was, was at, we were at Fox. You were at Fox. And yeah. so that was probably the first thing. We worked together. You've bought many pilots for me over exactly. the years, but I've never, there's a lot of questions I never get to, to ask. So let's start. What is there a memorable pitch? Doesn't have to be, shouldn't be one of mine. Uh, a great pitch that you, that stands out for you of all the ones you've heard. Oh my God. I mean, I, <laughs> I've heard so many pitches if you multiply. All right, let's start there while, while, you, think about, while you think about one. Mm-hmm. Pitching season, you're hearing, give me a rough number of how many pitches when you were running ABC Comedy, how and many ABC pitches? ABC, in the height of it. Um, so you would hear, you'd hear, I personally would hear anywhere between six and eight pitches a day in the height of pitch season. Um, sometimes you kind of had other rooms going and they would be hearing somewhere up to that number. Maybe. So, and that's six or eight pitches so, a day over so maybe, how let's many just say like Let's just say it's like 10 to 12 um, between you know, amongst the whole team um, over, let's see, August, September, October, like for three months. So three months, five days a week, 10 to 12 pitches. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. But you're hearing like a couple hundred, mm-hmm. 250, something yeah, like something that. something like that. And so I, it always amazes me that you're one an hour starting at mm-hmm. 10 until the last pitch of the Six. day. <laughs> do those just, were those... Did you ever buy those ones at five o'clock, six o'clock? Just to, sometimes just to get out of the room. Right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, look, a great pitch is always a great pitch, no matter what time of day it is. Um, it's always the ones that are kind of in between or, you know, maybe the ones you weren't going to buy to begin with that you feel bad for at five or six o'clock. But, right. um, but those, those pitches, you're at a disadvantage, right? I mean... I always think about those the times that I'm going to be pitching, and I never know if I'm thinking think about it too much. But I feel like it's human nature. Even if it's maybe the ones like two or three, like after lunch is yes, maybe. after you've heard a lot. But um, I mean, by the time when we were there, there was a, a healthy amount of kind of experience and conditioning and training <laughs> that went into it. So by the time pitch season came around, we were like rested and prepped and ready to go. Um, and I think like, you know, people would ask me a lot, like, oh, my God, how can you do it? Don't you hate hearing pitches? And I was, I'm always like, no, because I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I, I hate hearing pitches. Like I, I genuinely enjoyed pitches. I didn't dread pitch season. I didn't. It, for me, it's a it was always a, a glimpse into somebody's soul or life or the only time I hated a pitch was when I felt like it was cynical and that person was just trying to sell something. Then I wanted to like throw my notebook at that person. Right. Like get out, you're wasting my time. But um, I mean, anybody else who really kind of put, you know, thought or passion or effort into it. Um, I, I, I know this sounds really Pollyanna, but like I could always find something to respect about a pitch. And I even year 10 at ABC running comedy, <laughs> I went into pitches unless I really hated the log line, in which case I usually pass on hearing it. But like, I usually went into pitches thinking like, okay, I'm gonna buy this, like convince me otherwise. And obviously that happens a lot, right. but um, I would go into it with a, a healthy dose of optimism or else like, why was I in that So pitch? how much do you know if someone's coming in to pitch, how much, what do you know before they walk in the door? Um, 
you have, you know, who they are, you know, what the log line is. And, and that's really about it. But I mean, we would always go into every season, like with a hit list of the people we wanted to work with, you know, Reich and Cohen, number one. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but seriously, we would sit there and kind of set like, who were our priorities? Um, and, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget Adam Goldberg. Um, like early in the season, there was just like a one liner, like Adam Goldberg you know, family story from the eighties about his life. And, um, and I was like obsessed with this one line on a piece of paper. <laughs> and I mean, that obsession carried me for two years and we finally got the show, but, um, he came in and pitched it. I was on maternity leave. And I remember, you know, just kind of being on maternity leave with a pump. All you women know what that means. And I was like calling everybody after he pitched it, like trying to get this idea that I hadn't even heard, but I knew was a winner because I knew I'd seen some of the footage from his childhood in the eighties and it was priceless. And um, like early on when I had first met him and I just, I don't know, you just have an instinct when you know a writer and you hear an idea and you're like, that's what he's born to write. And um, we chased it over two years and then finally landed it. Right but now. you didn't actually, it's you crazy. didn't hear that. I finally heard it a year later, but I think I'd already offered like a production commitment. At that point. <laughs> Granted, like my team heard it and they were like, it's yes, it's the real, the real thing. Like it's a, a great pitch. So but, if there's one thing the primary thing that you are listening for in a pitch it's what um oh god there's so many things but obviously an authenticity and an originality to what you know what they're trying to say what the people are trying to say like is there a real reason for telling the story and doing the show or um is it just kind of a fabrication of things that are interesting was it pretty easy to tell? You talked about the ones that felt cynical and it was pretty easy to spot that. Yeah, it, it was. Um, definitely. I mean, those were, yeah, very easy. It just <laughs> felt like, you know, it was like it was like it was like a bad algorithm. It was like take um, X hit movie from the summer, multiply it by, you know, X kind of um, up and coming rising star, but is generic and kind of fits into any role <laughs> times, you know, whatever. You know. How many times did you hear it's a Jason Bateman type? Like 4,762. <laughs> Until um, it became an Adam Scott type. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, it all began with Paul Rudd, so. Sure, right. That's a, right. That's the progression. I know. Paul Rudd, Jason Payne. I know. Uh, I don't know who it is now. Well, those, since those, none of those guys are probably doing, you know, at least broadcast TV, there's probably someone I else. Know. That, there, yeah, um, exactly. There's some other type that's fill in the blank. But I know writers often feel like, oh, we've got to, we have this idea we really like, we have to fake some autobiographical connection to it. We have to make it seem like we're telling mm -hmm. some autobiographical story because they think executives are obsessed with things mm -hmm. being autobiographical. Like, we, we were, uh, yes, we were <laughs> totally obsessed. <laughs> I'll admit it. Well, because again, it's just kind of, it's like an easy way of looking at the connection, you know, and the kind of reality of where you go, because, you know, a lot of times you get lost in the development process or you're challenged in the development process. And, um, you only have this compass and the compass is like, it points to what were those words that were said to you in the pitch that made you sit up and go, wow, like I see the show or I have to see the show. And But did that um, have to, did, I mean, and did it, it doesn't, have to be autobiographical? No, or did, not at all. Not at all. I mean, there were things that like, you know, people lived with for five years and were, you know, marinating on marinate and that might as well become autobiographical because it's just like something that they've been passionate about, but it could be, you know, completely signed sci-fi right. you know but um how important was 
how funny the pitch was. For comedy? Yeah. Pretty funny. I mean, yeah, pretty, pretty, important. Important. pretty important. But <laughs> you're talking, you know, like the passion and the connection and whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, would something that was just hilarious, but maybe didn't quite have yeah. that. I mean, what, how? Uh, well, I mean, there were. Uh, it was comedy was really important. I think, um, you know, especially in this environment, it's a wonderful thing that our definition of comedy has become very expansive. But for broadcast, you know, especially in the time that I worked in it, um, it was incredibly important to us. And we felt like historically there had only been like, you know, two comedies that weren't like hard funny that kind of made an impression. And it was like Doogie Howser. <laughs> right. like, you know, yeah, you're like, going back to I know. <laughs> it was like trying to, you know, think of what those were. But um, I think for our audience, we felt like that was um, a big part of it. But the other part was um, was having a, a, you know, having some heart and real, emotional reality behind it. Um, right. It was really important to us. I mean, I guess part of what I'm asking is like, there's some people who are great at pitching. And, oh. and even, you know, when I would, you know, especially when it was Ted and I were working together, we were putting together pitch. There's times where we're just like, okay, we need, we need a laugh here. Maybe it has nothing really to do with like the show or what it's, because we just felt this thing of like, if people are laughing through that pitch, yeah, it's so. I'm always curious because I know writers who are great writers, but who are pitching just yes. not their oh, thing. So so many, right? Yeah. So um, how did you sort of make the allowances? For that and how did well, you keep people, yourself from being distracted we, by a great We tried picture. to make sure yeah, well, <laughs> those are tricky. <laughs> those are really tricky. I mean, I think the the inverse of that, the the idea that like a, a writer it can be hilarious on the page and, and not in a room was always, you know, top of mind. So um, you know, certainly we tried to be educated on people before they came in. Um, you know, fortunately if you've been doing something for a thousand years, <laughs> you start to know, you know, who people are and you're able to kind of give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, I think uh, if we didn't know a writer, we tried to read them before or if we liked the pitch, you know, certainly right after. Um, I mean, being funny in the room obviously is helpful. I mean, just yes, for the entertainment value of it, but mostly because you're trying to figure out like, well, what kind of Com- like what is the tone or brand of comedy of this writer or of this you know show because writers can do a lot of different things um, and if you don't get that in a room it's really hard yeah. <laughs> you know it's a, it's a difficult thing to kind of see I mean trying to think if there was ever an instance where we weren't you know not laughing in a room went and read material and kind of changed our minds about something but um, certainly for that type of comedy being funny was important yeah but that's not to say that like you couldn't see a great idea, you know, like there are still great ideas that you're like, oh, you're, you know, a thousand jokes in a pitch. But like a great idea always stood out, too. Um, how important. Yeah, I guess it's on the same subject of people just not being comfortable doing it. If you have someone who comes in and is really not off book, who is just mm-hmm. like reading from pages, mm-hmm. how much of a strike against them is that? Um. The danger with that, if I'm being really honest, is that you can space out while they're right. reading pretty easily. <laughs> and there's just like, it's just much harder to focus, you know, versus if somebody's talking to you, you're forced to make eye contact and you're engaged in this conversation. Um, it's just kind of human instinct if somebody's like reading something to you to be like, well, wait, I'm back. And so like you kind of miss a line and you're like, who was that character? Right. So that's, I think, the biggest danger. Um, again, um, there's... You know, there are great writers you're excited to hear from. They come in, they read to you. It's better that than, like, you know, turning the pitch inside out. <laughs> yeah. 
Are there, so if that's a mistake that people make, which is coming in and just reading something off the page, can you think of other mistakes that writers make in, in these rooms? In pitching? Yeah. Um, or hmm. you don't have to name names, but any particularly <laughs> like cringy, you know, hard to sit through pitches. Um, um, people with visual aids. I mean, there people. were I, there were so many. I think you try to like block. Them. Remember, I told you I got optimistic every year. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't try to block those out at the end of every pitch season. Um, I mean the. The cringy ones are like when they're like waiting for you to laugh and you're like, oh, wait, cue me. This is my part during to like laugh and you're like obligated to laugh. And then you're kind of like listening for your cue more than you're actually listening to the, to the actual pitch. Like those aren't that fun because you're like, oh, it's my job now. Um, this is like less of a writer thing, but, um, you know, I definitely kept this in mind when I, you know, transitioned to being a producer. But there's nothing worse than when, you know, a writer is sitting there pitching his or her heart out or their heart out. And um, and the producer or the, you know, the entourage is just sitting there staring at the buyer the whole time. <laughs> and you're like, someone is like, you're like, four people are staring at me. And this writer is just like laying everything on the line. And I'm sitting here trying to like react appropriately, but really I just want to be listening. But now I'm thinking about my facial expressions. Yeah. I mean, it's just like an absurd dynamic when really it should be about what the writer's saying. That's so right? funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean... I'm sure that's a very self, it, it's got to be a self-conscious position no matter what, right? Because it's like you're saying, you're, you're on the side of these writers, you're, you're rooting for them and mm-hmm. you, um, cause writers do talk about, and you know, I've had those pitches where you feel like you're pitching to a, a stone wall and it throws you off your game. You know, it's mm-hmm. much, you're going to get as an executive, you're going to get a better pitch yes. if you've. If you're smiling and engaged and and maybe fake laughing a little bit just because you're you know, you a keep comfortable the room writer, warm, right? Yeah. yeah. But that's funny that the people that are there, the entourage, is just shouldn't be staring at you. Although, or they're doing the Wimbledon thing, right? Yeah, <laughs> back and forth like writer, executive, writer, executive, and you're like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, because you know, I'm sure they're trying to read the tea leaves in that room, and and as a pitcher I think you go into this kind of fugue state where sometimes you walk in you're like I don't know what how she acted like I was just like blacked out Mm -hmm. it was all um that's funny but I've I mean I've heard the stories of people having gimmicks that they think like oh this is going to be great the worst case they're like come in costume it was super awkward but like people would bring like like a buffet of food that you know that, that like related some, to that the pitch related, yes, it's germane to the story in some way. And there's just like like the awkward cleanup after the pitch is over when you're all just kind of standing there and you don't <laughs> well, know like I what have to, to collect do. all my props. Yeah, exactly. And, or like you're gonna pass on something and you have like yeah, you have like seventy five dollars worth of like gifts in your hands. Like I don't really feel like I should take this here. So <laughs> gim- like gimmicky things like that are pretty much always. Would you say what about? Um, cause this is the only visual aid I've ever used, which is if it's a largish cast, mm-hmm. like headshots of kind of archetypes, you know, a picture of Jason Bateman or Paul mm-hmm. Rudd or Adam Scott, but you know, <laughs> pictures of people like, is that something that was helpful when you're yeah, doing a pitch totally. to kind of keep track? Yeah. So that's, I, always found, I mean, visual aids, I think that are, you know, again, relevant to what you're talking about. Like, why not? I mean, Things have to be cinematic, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. um, now you've had some time to think. 
Great pitches. Anything um, you mind? Um, I mean, I was talking <laughs> while I was thinking. Um, I mean, things that really stand. There were so many great pitches. Smothered. Um, I did always. You know, it was one pitch that stands out as a great pitch was when David Cast pitched um, happy endings. Mostly because I didn't know who the hell he was. Like in. Rarely do people kind of come in out of nowhere. The man knew he had written a blacklist script, and I knew, but he just because you know this kid sitting on my couch, and um, he was kind of both incredibly self confident and self effacing at the same time. And I just thought that was such a fun, unique, you know, kind of delivery and um, demeanor to have. And uh, and the pitch for the show was great. I mean, he had like it was really just a show about friends, which um, you know, thanks to you and right. you know, all your friends, we've heard like 20,000 of them. Um, but what made but it stand out? What just made the- it stand out was, um, it had a little bit of a, a gimmick around it. I mean, I gimmick is, is, is too pejorative of a word. I think it was really kind of a, a cool little conceptual packaging of like, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, there's the kind of, um, guy who stops the wedding and a grand romantic gesture. Um, but it's not kind of following him and the girl. It's not the graduate. It's like the guy who's left at the altar and, and what happens after that. Um, and then just a, that being a way into a group of friends. And then when he talked about, you know, his friend characters, he was just, you know, kind of referencing people in his life and, you know, kind of the reality of some of who they were, like his, you know, at the time, his gay friend who was not a character out of Will and Grace, you know, was just like one of the guys. <laughs> and, you know, I think there was just a specificity to the characters that felt very fresh to us. But then there was also um, a list of just kind of things that were unacceptable to him, like tramp stamps and hipsters and, like, you know, just things which, again, at the time, like, you know, hipsters were like, they were, they were a very kind of new and cool thing. Like right. nobody it was, was taking it. It wasn't a cliche to show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, hipsters were starting to like infiltrate everything at that moment, and we were all just like, what's this kind of in- invasion of coolness coming our way? Um, so he just listed it part of the pitch. He was just, just like, like he went on this like little mini rant in the middle of it, and I was like, who is this kid who hates so many things? I'm like, he's so funny, <laughs> you know? It just felt like he had a voice. Yeah, was- he had a voice and a and a and a point of view and felt kind of um, you know, again, it's like uniquely suited to write this idea right. the combination of him and this idea and I didn't know him but he just had a way of kind of presenting himself that felt very clear so that was probably one where you weren't thinking oh I'm going to buy this in the room ahead of time because it wasn't just a known quantity N- correct and but but is it one that you remember like did you just buy that yeah in the we, room? we bought it in the room um I have to check with Jamie Tarsus, but I'm pretty sure we bought it in the room. Um, we went, I mean, we went after it pretty aggress- aggressively. Um, be- Especially since, like, I found out, I'm like, he was, like, painting. Like, he was a painter in New York. <laughs> like, like, right before I knew. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, so then you're just going to try this and be good at that. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that is, like, there's such an art to conveying character in a pitch. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. I hear pitches sometimes, I'm like, you're just giving me a list of adjectives. And it's, mm-hmm. that's not, you know, you, you have to tell me a story about this character yeah. behaving in some situation in a way so that I could start to get like, oh, now I have a sense of that character. You can't just it's read a descriptive, you know, thing. Yeah. You can't say bull in a china shop or whatever. It's just like, I, I don't know. That's generic. Yes, exactly. So Avoid all cliches. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I'm always curious about that buying in the room because it does feel like a lot of the time going in, it's somewhat, you know, it's there it's theirs to lose in a way, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of times you're like, okay, I've heard the log line. I like it. I like the writer. I'm probably going to buy this in a room unless it's just like a train mm-hmm. wreck of a pitch. 
Is that correct? Some, especially if you knew, I mean, especially like, you know, at that time, if you knew it was competitive and, you know, broadcast being, you know, as, as kind of on a, on a timeline as it, as it is, you just knew that you didn't have a lot to kind of mess around and right. here's what we want to do. And so knowing that there was already another bidder affected your perception of, mm-hmm. of the pitch? I don't know that it does now as much, but it definitely did at the time. Okay. You know, I think like times have changed a lot, but you know, at that time it, it, it did. Sometimes you felt very like relieved because you're like, oh, okay, I can pass. Yeah, exactly. Like somebody's really like, excited, excited yeah. about that because I don't want it. And I really like that person. <laughs> right. um, but um, sometimes if you were inclined to like something and want to buy it, okay, I throw my hat in the ring. We'll figure it out. Right. You know, and figure out how crazy we'll get for it. Um, how long should they, should they be? Pitches? Yeah. God, everybody has such a different point of view on this. I mean, I think consensus is like no more than 35 minutes. Okay. I mean, I won't name names, but I've been, I was in a pitch once that went like, I think it went 70 minutes. A and comedy yeah, pitch was a that comedy was pitch. 70 minutes? It was a comedy pitch. And um, and the writer was do, was talking for most of that 70 know. minutes. I it mean, wasn't like you guys got into a conversation. Talk about like a fugue state. I, I mean, it, was, it was really interesting. I think, um, yeah, we were waiting for him to stop and we couldn't, I mean, it was, yeah, it was interesting president okay. of the network was in it it was uh, it was fascinating oh jeez mm-hmm. yeah so that's clearly too long but yes. around half an hour yeah is, yeah I um, think so and then kind of opening it up to a conversation and how but that's like a huge like that's an art form too right like how do you kind of distinguish yourself set up the world and a tone and a vision and the why and why me and yeah. all of those things and then you know be compelling all in 30 minutes yeah I mean you've been on the other side of it now and bringing people mm-hmm. in and so you've um, you've probably seen writers make mistakes right you know that you've had to guide them into doing all of those things yeah I mean some things you're just like this was just never meant to be a half hour pitch like you know when you're looking at this poor writer going I don't know how you're gonna like, <laughs> like we gotta trim five minutes you know and it's sometimes it's just not it's kind of impossible um, yeah. Do you need to, did you feel like you wanted to hear the pilot story when you were hearing the pitch? Do you want to have a sense of like what that I didn't, was like be? not for, I think for broadcast, no. I mean, depends on the type of show. Like in the streaming world, it is so much more important now, I think. Um, but for like broadcast half hour, it was so much more just about like potential pilot story. Like where are you starting? Why? And then like, I, I think... At that time, kind of hearing an entire pilot broken out, you're like, ah, too much information. Yeah. You know? But you just wanted to have maybe just a sense yeah, of where exactly. you're Which, starting. Yeah, exactly. Where are you starting? If there are any kind of, for example, you know, in Blackish, they always wanted to do that um, bro mitzvah at the right. end. And you're just like, ah, brilliant. Yes. Okay. Like, that's what you're driving towards. It's like the apex of, um, you know, all the themes of the show. It's just so smart to always want to do that in the pilot. So sometimes you just know what your pilot story has to revolve around. Right. It feels like when you don't, that often is trouble, right? It, like, it can. Because <laughs> then you don't know why you're starting there. Maybe yeah. That's kind of the issue. And yet, you know, sometimes there's people, the whole issue of like premise pilot just mm-hmm. seems like at some point that became 
sort of a bad there word. There were so many ridiculous taboos in broadcast yeah. television, you know, and one of them was like, I, I can't ever do a premise pilot. I will say that at one point I personally put an embargo on birthday parties in pilots because, <laughs> like kids' birthday parties, just because it had become like a little bit of a crutch and it actually hindered, you know, hindered the the creative process in terms of like, like uncovering what's special about, yeah. you know, said family or said whatever storyline. You're just like, oh, there's the kid's birthday party. And um, there are good pilots that have kid's birthday parties, but there just were too many. Yeah. Were there other things like that? <laughs> Pregnancies. Um, <laughs> um, I don't. That was a big one. I'm sure there were others, but like I, I that was definitely one that I personally will take the responsibility for. I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. But um, uh, yeah, I would assume if at ABC too, because you're hearing so many family stories. And yeah, so you like, what's the event in the pilot? Oh, it's a kid's. It's a kid's birthday, birthday. party. But they always kind of had that. You know, if there was ever a twist on it, we were like, yes. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I'm sure there were. I'm just not thinking of them right now. Right. I remember. We had a pilot at CBS and there was like this thing where it was like, and you're at a bar and a guy was talking and then he like got behind the bar and he was the bartender. And I remember like them being like, you can't do that. We have like five pilots where someone just like gets behind the bar and is the bartender. It's just like, oh shit. Like that, I didn't realize what a cliche that is. It just felt like, oh, this is a cool way to show this. So sometimes you don't know because we're, you know, as a writer, of course. you guys are looking at a million pilots and you're just like yeah. more sensitive sometimes to those things. Like as writers, you're like, oh, I've got this really clever idea. Really Everyone else also has that same thing. Um, were there times where it was just like a, you know, you heard this great pitch and then the pilot, did, like the the script, just never quite felt like that pitch you heard. You know, all the time, all the time, right? <laughs> yeah, um, not all the time. Um, that's an exaggeration, but yes, it happened. I mean, I mean, that's what development is, and um, I think uh, yeah, those were those were the hardest. I think because you get really excited about something, and then um, you either realize maybe you heard something that wasn't the intention, um, or um, maybe that person couldn't really deliver on the promise of right. you know the pitch. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems like those that happens frequently. That there's just oh, the writer just had intended something totally different mm -hmm. than what came across, and maybe the writer didn't realize how you were pitching it to your boss or, you know, absurd, like the yeah. essence of what you were looking for yes. was different from the essence of what they thought they're right. Yeah. And, and can that ever, were there instances where you, you finally made that work or you is it kind just, of reverse engineer it? Yeah. It kind of doesn't work. But it doesn't right? really work. I mean, it's the first thing we, you know, kind of talk about when we bought something, you know, when I buy something now, even like, are we on, like, are we aligned? You know, right. do we, did we hear and do we want to do the show that the writer wants to do? Because it's really hard to kind of, you know, veer off that course. And yeah. um, I think, uh, again, kind of just going back to that roadmap, when you when you hit kind of a snag in a story or, you know, in a season, you kind of have to go back to like, why are we doing this? Right. Um, why is it important to the writer? Why is it important to, you know, us as producers or the network? Um, and then 
and, and really, I mean, that was kind of, you know, there's obviously a lot of conversation around notes and network notes, but for us, it was like, that's what we tried to go back to. So if we got something and we felt like it wasn't funny enough, we would try to go back to like, okay, what were we laughing at? And like, right. why was that funny to us? And kind of direct the conversation that way. Um, but sometimes there's that realization where you're like, oh, we heard something different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it seems like the note that's hardest to give is this needs to be funnier. Right. Oh God, it's the worst. <laughs> so you can't, you probably never really, you don't really often it give really, that note. Well, here's, <laughs> here's how we would try to give it is like, um, if like the funniest character in the show was, um, you know, the boss at work and, you know, he, we would kind of go back to like, what were the things that were funny about the boss at work? And we just give like a hundred notes around that. <laughs> like, like, oh, you know what? We were like hoping that we could define the boss a little bit better. You know, and just kind of keep going to remember on the pitch you talked about, you know, the boss would always do this. Like, can you get that in the pilot? And, um, and then sometimes at the very end we resort to the, and then, Hey, like this draft is really important. So let's do, do like the one big punch up. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, guy, bye, bye. And hang up <laughs> real quick, but just kind of like throw that out there as like the, Oh yeah. You know, while we're at it, like, let's just do that, that, that final punch up that will make or break your pickup chances. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's so hard. The empathy to have, <laughs> I having done this long time, like I find it took me a while to arrive at like, oh no, okay, they were just like we're we're on the same team. It's so easy for writers to feel like you guys are just some kind of enemy who are like hell bent on like destroying what we want to do and to really see like, oh no, they want they want it to work, but um and you know, when I've supervised writers, I often just like when you get the notes, don't do anything until the next day. Just like you're you're probably awesome. mad right now, right. <laughs> and you have to like calm down, like because it's just a you know we're you know, it's defensiveness, and we're also insecure as writers that yeah. it feels bad, like it stirs up bad feelings. But also, it's like we're you know when you're on the network side, it's like you're an institution, so like this institution is giving you like feedback on something that's hopefully deeply personal to you, right? You know? Yeah. Um, Let's talk about story documents. So, like, the worst, what, the worst right? <laughs> the Can worst. You just like, yes, help me understand why uh, do those still exist? exist? I don't know. In 2019, I don't know. Yeah. In 2016, um, it's hard because, like, they they really. I mean, they got away from us too. To be honest, like, I, I can speak for myself. Like, for me, Jamila, Lynn, Kelly, John, like, the, our team, we we wanted what we really were looking for in a story document. And we would say like, it doesn't have to be, like it should be really short. <laughs> but we, what we wanted to know was like, what is the kind of, what is the physical through line of your story, right? So what is the plot? Like the general area of the plot, um, just so that we could veto kids' birthday parties <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> before you broke a story around it in an outline. Um, and then the other thing was, the other element, so it was like two tracks. And the, what was the emotional storyline for like, our lead characters. Um, and we just wanted to know what those things were. And they just kind of evolved through like producers and studios. And I also, I get it. Like everyone's anticipating scrutiny. Um, and to like, sometimes we got story documents that were so long and we're like, we really don't. And then it begs <laughs> questions and then it breeds resentment. <laughs> and then, right. You know, you're in like the story document quagmire. And, and what we really just wanted was like a paragraph, like, you know, telling us like why, we care, <laughs> you know, right. like why do we care emotionally, and then why will it be, why will it be visual and funny? Um, yeah, it's yeah. such a tricky one because I, yeah, I, I, there's a temptation to write an outline, mm -hmm. right? you know, because mm -hmm. it's hard to 
to, to just yeah. summarize it. And I feel like, if anything, there's maybe not clear communication of, yeah, of, of, of what, what, it, what it is. Because it's just, it's not called... It's like, where's the one pager? And the one page is this this weird amount. It's not a paragraph. It's not a log line. It's it's not like you feel like you have to tell the whole every beat of the story, which you can't do. Um, And then for some writers, we felt like if they couldn't actually kind of summarize for us what that story was, like inevitably you were going to get a script that had no story. Right. (laughs) You know, that would be kind of meandering and, um, you know, like a little bit directionless. And, you know, in 21 minutes and 30 seconds, that's a kiss of death. Yeah. You got to have a purpose. Um, And sometimes like if we didn't have that and even like and then you would get to the outline stage and it would just be the kind of harbinger of a script that was kind of meandering. So we kind of thought whether it was um, misguided or not, that if you could kind of if you could synthesize what that pilot was supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) Theoretically, you know, um, it would always have a point. (laughs) Right. And then. So when you get to outline, um, what are you looking for there? And I guess I'm asking because there's there's always a tricky thing of how funny outline your outline to has to be. Um, mm. How important was that and how important was it just like, okay, this is a clear story with stakes that... I never felt like outlines had to be funny. If you were laughing in an outline, you're like, oh my God, it's amazing. We're laughing in an outline. Um Again, I mean, there's so many things about the broadcast structure that are, um, you know, that are, are very, um, and they're specific, right? So, like, right. You have, like, you know, we knew we had, we had a three-act structure and we had, um, you know, we had four program segments. And, and so you're kind of just looking to make sure, um, and frankly, the commercial pods were long. So you're just looking to make sure that um, everything is driving people to stay tuned in versus you know, change the channel. Right. Um, so, so I that, think so like breaks. an outline, yeah. So an outline, you were kind of look, looking for act breaks. You were looking for, um, yeah, a sense of just by the, knowing that by the end of the episode, people will have, you know, you will have set up the world. You have, would have promised, you know, the series and fallen in love with the characters and be really funny. I mean, it's a, <laughs> a tall order. Like, you know, somebody who, um, I mean, I, I have so much um, respect and I revere broadcast comedy writers because who can do that? It's like you have to create all of those things and be funny and then promise that you can do this 22 times a year, right. 24 times a year at ABC um, in perpetuity. I mean, it was it was a, a preposterous ask, but then, you know, so many of you guys rose to the challenge. Like it was, it's a tall order. So I think like a lot of the rigors of the process came out of knowing what, you know, what lies ahead. Right. Yeah. You're going to need those act breaks. Yeah. You're going to have to do yeah. that or, and you're going to have to have the story engines. Exactly. And um, this potential for longevity, right? Like longevity, longevity. Now it's like you live in a world where Netflix wants to do 30 episodes of a show and be done. And be done right. It's right. like, is it? But you know, I think that that's, it was a very different system. It broadcast is a very different system. Yeah. What are, you know, now that you're on the other side and you're at Imagine and you're selling both, you know, you're selling cable streaming, but you're also selling, I mean, in both of those like what, what's frustrating from, from this side um, that are there things that you maybe didn't realize when you were a buyer that now as a seller, you see differently? Um, well, it's interesting because I think the business has also just changed so much, right. and, you know, since I've transitioned over. Um, 
There were kind of surprises on the other side of it. I mean, there were things that I thought would drive me crazy that actually don't. I just, you know, because my husband's a producer, sometimes I'd look at him and be like, how can you read the same script that many times? <laughs> you know, and and actually, like, it doesn't it doesn't really bother me. And I mean, the, the times that it does, it's usually just because I was never really that into the project to begin with. But most for the most part, you know, if I really care about something, I was surprised by the fact that I was like, oh, here's the seventh draft, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, perfectly happy to sit down and, and read it again. Um, so that was shocking <laughs> to me because I thought that was, you know, brutal. I also, um, you know, I don't love being passed on, but I also thought like, how futile to work on all these things that don't go forward. <laughs> you know, it's like such like the privilege of a buyer sentiment. But um, um, I think ultimately I didn't realize like how much you get out of that process, you know, even the things that don't, I mean, so much of what you put out there doesn't go forward and right. it's, it's far from futile. It's um, actually incredibly gratifying. And, um, you know, I feel like they're stepping stones to something else that kind of gets you closer. So those two were kind of surprises um, in, in the opposite direction. I think, I don't know, the things that are frustrating are, are pretty obvious. Like when, you hear some, a buyer say something, they're like, well, we just don't think that that works because of X. And you're like, well, that's so subjective. <laughs> like, no, of course that works. Like, and you just don't, you know, agree. Like if when I was a buyer and I had that thought, like I could just go prove, like, people could laugh at me, but I could go kind of prove them wrong or just quietly fail, right. <laughs> you know, on the side. But now it's like, you know, having somebody else kind of be the arbiter of that. You're like, right. I don't hold those cards anymore. Yeah. That's your thing about reading this seven drafts, something made me think of a question this is another thing writers think a lot about when you get a new draft you just read so for those who don't know <laughs> there's stars next to the lines that are changed in a new draft do you <laughs> did you just look at the starred lines or did you read the whole script usually when <laughs> when you're getting like the second or the third draft of the pilot it really i mean it's case by case if there's a way that I could just read the stars and get away with it and it's like off, like net net is the same kind of, yes, of course. I mean, we're all, we're all reading a lot. Um, I think, I mean, a lot of times you have to read the whole thing to kind of process what right. that is. It's about, I mean, especially if you're selling things now, you're like, oh no, like we're taking this out. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, for, yeah, for your part, you need this. to really know. It's just, I yeah. know writers who are just like, I'm just going to star some things just so it seems like I've changed more. By the way, more. we know when you do that. You do, okay. <laughs> we totally know All when right. you do that. Okay, good. Um, by the way, sometimes you, we have assistants who sit there and compare them. <laughs> okay, and you know when we cheat margins? Yeah. Just okay. to like, <laughs> when your When your down. Y on the upper line touches the I on the line below it, we know that your spacing is off. Okay. All right. <laughs> These are things we think that we I know. Can... Like we know. Um, but uh, yeah. How about how, you know, writers should deal with just in a general sense of, you know, you're torn as a writer, like how many notes you feel like <laughs> you have to take from a, from the network executive. Um, did you, what would you think of a writer who just took every note? Well, I mean, <laughs> you're like, wow, they have, they, yeah. I mean, you, you question whether or not you, they have, yeah. <laughs> you question yeah. if they, if they have their own vision for the show or. Um, so there's an expectation when you're giving those yes. notes, like these aren't all, we're not expecting no. all of these. Usually you try to lead with that. Like here are examples of things and, you know, um, the spirit of something. And we definitely want you to like make this your own version of that 
but no. I mean, but were there people who just fought every note to the point that it was just like really detrimental? <laughs> that you no, I had a writer once who I love, and by the way, I still like you know, think of him for, for lots of stuff, but he, um, we got on the call and, um, it was a cool project. I was really into it. We got on the call and I was like, Hey, and I don't even remember what the note was. I said, I asked a question. I'm like, you know, the one thing we're thinking about is like, blah, blah, blah. and maybe, maybe to him, it sounded like, does it have to be a light bulb? But he just said, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm not going to do anything. And I go, oh, okay. <laughs> and like the studio went silent and, you know, everybody on our end of the call kind of just went like open mouth. And I was like, I totally respect that. I was like, um, awesome. Thank you so much for all of your hard work on it. And, um, you know, I guess we'll follow up with you. And then we just kind of hung up and that was the end of that project. That was the end of the project. Well, but not. I mean, we weren't being punitive, but we didn't think it was ready to shoot. <laughs> But he just, I mean, he like led the call with that. And uh, yeah, it was pretty funny. It was, it was very entertaining. But you know what? Like I had to respect that he did not want to hear anything. He did not want to do anything. Like that was what he wanted to write. And, um, you know. But does that, that script would still get passed up the, you no. know, no. At that point, you're just like, sorry, it's well, not like, even going to get read. Like, so that's Because well, like, like you can't, because you can't like pass that script up and be like, hey, if you like this, the, it would be passed up, like I would have to love it to pass it up and be like I love this exactly the way it is which is a good thing because he's not going to change a damn word right. <laughs> like, you know and therefore if you love it exactly the way it is then we can shoot every word on this page but um, it's hard to like you know yeah it's no longer a collaboration and it's well yeah because I mean inevitably like you know somebody along the way might have a thought right. <laughs> um, and it's fine that's his prerogative and for me, I never wanted anybody to do anything that they would, and I'm sure they have, but I didn't want anyone to ever do anything that they would, um, you know, regret and, you know, feel horribly about. And like, you have to live with your show, you yeah. know, and you have to live with the choices that you make. Um, and sometimes I would say like, like, this is not an ultimatum, but just so you know, like, these are really important to, you know, the chances of your show getting picked up. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's rarely laid out that clearly. I think, you know, it's it's more often for the writer left to, like, try and figure out how much is this going to matter right. and is it... And, right, because everything's, you, like, in a gray area. Yeah, you don't know what really, you know, it's hard to gauge, like, mm -hmm. what are the really important notes or one of the, like, yeah. oh, I just had this thought if you want to do it or, you know, yeah. or not. But, you know, you sort of just yeah. spin trying to figure out, okay. Right. Um, and, and it's always a question of do you... You know, do you get into it on the phone call or you, do you just do the thing of like, OK, we'll take a look and then not do it? I mean, I always felt like if you had something to really kind of bring to a conversation, like a real question, you know, if you want to engage on a thought and kind of dig deeper on it, like do it on the call. You know, I mean, right. I, I never wanted it to feel like, you know, these were ultimatums being shouted from the network of like, do these and maybe you'll get picked up. But yeah. you know, I always felt like it should be a conversation and, and sometimes it led to understanding the show better for us. And that was always important. Um, I think that's hugely important for some people. Like I know some writers just need to process and then yeah. kind of come back to the table, but having a follow-up conversation is always helpful too. I mean, I don't know. You know it shouldn't be one-sided. right? Yeah. Were there pilots where you knew like this is not this is definitely not going any further, but you would keep giving going through the process of giving notes on? Or no, if, I mean, not, not like keep giving notes. I mean, there were definitely times where we felt like we had to kind of give some notes, <laughs> you know, just like like somebody had worked really hard. And, you know, sometimes you just kind of gave a Hail Mary note like, oh, no, maybe you know, will yeah, maybe this will change things. Um, we tried to not and we tried to gauge, you know every situation like that is not a writer who wants just 
do another pass, you know, or, right. or um, no matter what that writer does, it's not going to change because we just picked up another show that does exactly that. So, you know, we tried not to waste people's time, but then there were people who were like, no, this is really important to them. And you want like, they, we think they would take that shot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, Again, for writers, I think you keep getting notes, and you know. Again, I, when, when I, it's easy for me to say this when I'm supervising people because I have mm-hmm. that separate move. Just like, no, this is a good thing, right? That you're, you're, right, you keep right. getting notes. It means they really want this it, to happen. It was, for us, true? it was true. I mean, you know, like you're doing so many things, and I mean, January was like the most hateful month when you make all your your pilot pickup decisions, and you're giving notes, and everyone's kind of frantic, and you're trying to like see things clearly, and you're trying to give everybody like their their day in court and their best shot. Um, you know, if we were giving like a third and fourth round of notes or even like a kind of, Hey, a bunch, it's because we were sitting there going, okay, we're going to send this up to, you know, the network president. And we really want to say, yes, this one, but we think that certain things just aren't clear or, you know, we don't think it's everything that we thought it would be in the pitch just yet. I mean, like no one's wasting any, like nobody wants to be on that call. Right. Not the network, not the, you know. Yeah. And so then that, that process, like once drafts are in, looks like at ABC look like what? Like you, you probably had your favorites of mm-hmm. that. And Definitely. then you've got the head of the network that you have to mm-hmm. convince and your whole team. And um, we, we did, a, I mean, my team, we did a lot of kind of internal conversations. So you had other people on the team kind of rallying behind other people's projects or not. Um, we definitely had our, our priorities. We definitely had things. I mean, they kind of fell into three categories. It was a little bit of like, okay, here are the things that we just, we love and we either believe in the potential or it's there, it's there on the page. Um, then there were the things that you're like, okay, maybe, you know, like there were just things that we loved from the pitch or like, we love that writer so much, or we love that idea. So, you know, there were things in there that made you, um, you know, want to kind of root for this thing to come together. And then there was like the category of things that you just felt like, you know what, it was a great shot. I'm really glad we tried it. And it's probably not in the game. Yeah. And were there times where you just loved something? I mean, I know there were, um, but uh, were you <laughs> saying that and, the, um, and you know, the president, you know, your boss just didn't see it. Like, were you ever able to successfully change their, their mind about something mm-hmm. or was that just kind of, I mean, the great thing about like where I was, is that there were just so many, um, the kind of, ethos of like even just all of Disney when I was there was like to let people do their jobs and that ultimately you know there were things um inevitably there were things almost every year that um you know me or somebody on my team like somebody would fight for and um maybe other people wouldn't see it and you would have those opportunities I think the really hard thing was um you know for pilot it's kind of one story but when you get the series there was another, I mean, there were series that, you know, you fall on your sword for and you go, I know that this writer has a show. I know. And then, you know, some other thing backs you up, like it tested really well or um, marketing loved it, you know, <laughs> like one of these other kind of um, like green light, you know, green buttons light up in, in your favor. And so you, you get this pickup, but it was heartbreaking and it happened with a couple of shows where you fight for this pickup and you know that the writer has a voice and a story to tell and, and, it's, a, and it's a show and then um, it premieres and it does okay. <laughs> right? And it does okay but you don't have all of the other forces of the network kind of behind it, you know, like um, 
you know, the, the very pragmatic people in scheduling are like, yes, but I don't know. Or the or somebody marketing is like, I just, it's not, it's not loud. And we, we, we pushed it. We put money behind it and it's not getting these. So you're sitting there going, okay, like I kind of fought so hard to get this show picked up, but nobody was ever really behind it except for the creative team. And then you're kind of like eight and done and eight episodes and done. Yeah. And or what, you know, those were the heartbreaking ones where like you were kind of given your chance, but like your chance was really only to like, you know, hit it out of the park. Like this yeah. kind of mid-level success for a show that like you were, you see it, you saw it at CBS all the time back in the day, but um, you yeah. know, like the team would fight for this thing and then it was a- You can't sh- do it alone. I mean, yeah, it happens like, at networks all the time. Yeah. Like just cause your creative team is behind you. Like you need the entire network behind you. So that would be a lot of the conversation we'd have as a show is going forward is like, like some of these things that we're telling you sound like horrible networky things, but it's because we also just want to make sure we're kind of like everybody, gets it you're seeing the full picture of what it's gonna Mm -hmm. what it's gonna take exactly i mean it's it's you're mounting and you know you're mounting like this giant production and then you need everyone rowing in the same direction right network studio all the players it's not just kind of the beautiful voice of the writer and the cast (laughs) yeah no i always think that you know obviously blackish pilot great pilot what would have happened had not every billboard you know been covered Mm -hmm. with you know a blackish Mm -hmm. like the whole network was yeah. so behind it yeah. that it was able to, you know, yeah. people were able to see it and, you know, and it was you such know, a push. Paul, Paul Lee, my boss at the time, was so smart about it, too, because when we brought him the show, and we, you know, um, Kenya and Larry and everybody wanted, wanted to call it blackish. Um, he was very much behind that, but he just was very clear in saying, like, when we sell the show, we have to make sure we have the buy-in from the African-American community because it can't be this like white network saying, we've got this show called Blackish, you <laughs> yeah. know, like very kind of astutely said, like, this is a show that has to, you know, I mean, it, we have it's all black producers, but, um, you know, we're not just kind of all calling this show Blackish, like glibly, and then, you know, plastering it all over billboards for people to reject, you know, we're not putting all this money in there to turn people away. So if we're going to call it Blackish, then we got to make sure we have real buy-in. Hmm. And how did he know that, like, how did he assure that he did? Um, you know, I think they marketed it in a really smart way because I mean, we also had a lot of Anthony and we had Lawrence. Yeah. And so we had a lot of big kind of, you know, names um, behind it. So we were able to kind of push that front and center as well and make sure that everybody understood that a lot of it came from Anthony and kind of Kenya's, you know, right. real lives, again, coming from a very authentic place. Um, and then just in the PR of it all, just, you know, yeah. what festivals are you, uh, how are you, you know, showing the sh- show and, um, yeah. Yeah. You brought up testing a little bit, like how, how did that work in the decision-making? Cause another thing writers get paranoid I about. <laughs> I think it actually, I mean, some places it mattered, you'd hear stories about other places, but you know, for us, it could help you. It didn't necessarily hurt you. I mean, well, yeah, it didn't necessarily hurt you. Um, there were definitely shows that like, you know, everything's in kind of quadrants. <laughs> like if you're in the upper right quadrant, um, that means you're like testing the best. And if you're in the lower left, you're, that's kind of the worst. And um, yeah, I mean, there were shows that like, I would kind of wield testing like a, a weapon for good and be like, it tested well, we have to pick it up. Um, and if it tested bad, I'm like, testing doesn't mean anything. And I <laughs> kept the friends testing in my office on my bulletin board, which was awesome. Cause yeah, cause it, the, um, it said it pass and they're too young and nobody cares about them. It's not funny. And you yeah, know, all they were really like, turned off by how like promiscuous Monica was. I think that I might have been there. Yeah, there was, was uh, the, it was a fair amount. The older of, women were very like, she was mm-hmm. slutty and like, they just didn't like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. But are you thinking, when your drafts are coming in, are you thinking about how 
how specific things have tested well or poorly like is that no that's mm. not you know because there's a, whatever the jokes are it's just like oh we just put a cute dog in the teaser because okay. then it'll test well um i again i try look i mean we knew that if you had a dance number at the end of your pilot so like <laughs> right, you have the pro so, mitzvah but, yeah exactly like i mean if we loved a pilot and it felt you know american housewife like it felt kind of natural to the show and they actually we didn't i don't know that we you know um, pitched to them but like at the end they're all kind of dancing together as a family but it actually made sense because they had all just kind of been through this journey together you know she, a lot of the show was kind of about her body self-image and um, to kind of get out there and flaunt it and move it felt very you know organic to um, her character but in the back of my mind I was also just like okay great that's going to be like a big dial swing <laughs> up for, for our, our show that we want to test as well as um, as it can so there are definitely times where you do it but I don't you know I don't think we ever wanted to do it in a way that didn't feel organic to the show. Right. Um, but yes, exactly. A bro mitzvah, it's like you have those kids break dancing and everyone's in there. I mean, yeah. I defy you not to smile and love that. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's done so well. Yeah. And it's great. So, okay. Are there things just to wrap up, like about being on this side of it, being a seller that you like, more like what you know what's oh my god so many things <laughs> well first I, I think and you know i spent 17 years at fox and then abc um and I, I i fell into kind of corporate life but i love being a buyer it was really like a fun experience and i like being able to kind of curate and filter and think about brand you know the other side of that now is to not service one brand and there are so many platforms and there are so many interesting things happening out there i think you know the ability to um see kind of anything that strikes a chord and go, okay, like I could find a home for that. It's not like, does it fit into my box? <laughs> right. um, you know, I think that's the best part of it is um, just anything that you can get your arms around or you feel passionate about or you know is a show and, you know, I mean, Imagine has a very important brand too, but um, thankfully it aligns very well with my own taste. <laughs> but I think uh, that's, especially in this environment, like, like a huge gift. So Yeah, it doesn't have to have a a sweet montage with voiceover at the end of it. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't have to do that. It doesn't have to, you know, there's just so many, I mean, I think everybody kind of has a brand that they're trying to fill or a whole, you know, I think for us, it's like so much about the voices and the ideas. Like just start there. Yeah. This was so cool. Yeah. Thanks for doing it, Tommy. Oh, thanks for having me. This is my first podcast. Yes. Exclusive. <laughs> Exactly. Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And we host Round Springfield. Round Springfield is a new Simpsons podcast that is Simpsons adjacent. Mm -hmm. um, in its topic, we talk to Simpsons writers, directors, voiceover actors, you name it, about non-Simpsons things that they've done. Because, surprise, they're all extremely talented. Absolutely. For example, David X. Cohen worked on The Simpsons, but then created a little show called Futurama. Mm -hmm. That's our very first episode. Episode. Yeah. So tune in for stuff like that with Yardley Smith, with Tim Long, with different writers and voice actors. It's going to be so much fun. And we are every other week on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for another special edition of our show this month. Uh, this show is produced by myself and Ben Blacker and our associate producer, Noah Finling. I really want to thank Sami Falvey for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, the best way to support this podcast, subscribe. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Stitcher now. Uh, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever. Uh, those ratings really help. Tell a friend. 
about this. You've got someone who would enjoy this. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at Dead Pilots Society. That way you'll find out about all of our live shows, including the one coming up on February 29th. Uh, we'll be back next month with our regularly scheduled programming, a great dead pilot for you. So until next time, I am your host, Andrew Reich. Thank you for listening. <laughs>